Are we good here? Can you hear me all right? All right. Just want to have a little caveat here. Um, we ended our baseball season yesterday at Palisade High School, and Brendan knows I put more effort and energy and thought into that team and those kids, and so I don't think my brain has stopped thinking about the game since uh, the game was over. They're cool. Yeah, those kids are cool. Woke up at midnight, one, three, five, and I finally just got up. And uh, it's tough when you put a, a, a lot of energy and care into something and it just doesn't go as you plan. But uh, I think that's kind of like life, isn't it? I mean, oftentimes we plan one thing and something else happens and we just got to manage it and deal with it. So I've got three words that I want to look at this morning. Radical, aliens, and strangers. The word radical means very different from the usual or traditional. Uh, it means extreme, favoring extreme changes in existing views and habits. Aliens and strangers used in the Bible both mean resident foreigners. Those, uh, those words should describe followers of Jesus. And the reason I think this going through this uh, Sermon on the Mount is important personally is, uh, you know, coaching those kids, I, 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 hate, I hate losing at anything. Um, Jen Rummy, years ago, my, <laughs> I'm not kidding, years ago my mother-in-law uh, said that some of her family members don't like to play cards with me because I'm too competitive, and my response is, well, they just don't like to lose. I mean, everything, ping pong, golf, mini golf, cards, it doesn't matter. I hate losing. And so after our, you know, loss yesterday, I was talking to the reporter, and I'm, I'm thinking about uh, what I'm going to say, and, and um, I'll let you read the paper if you can ask me later how I compared losing a baseball game to childbirthing, especially ladies can say, like, what did you mean by that? Hopefully it explains it. But I realized that... Um, my job there is to really teach spiritual matters. It's not just teaching a ground ball or how to field a ground ball or how to how to hit and run or you know how to lead off. That's that's all that's all physical stuff. But like my job and my goal there is to teach young men who have open ears most of the time um, how to understand scripture and how to apply it to their lives. And I I don't see that much different than what we're doing here today is, is trying to look at what the Word says and how do I apply that to my life so that I can be everything that God wants me to be. Because it's not about state titles. It's, it's about preparing people for the next step. And eventually that last step is going to get us into a point where we hear one of two things. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or um, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. And I'm certain that everybody in this room wants to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we don't want to be fooled into thinking we're going to hear that and be surprised like they were in Matthew chapter 7, which in a couple of months will probably be there. So as we continue to look through the words of Jesus, we get to a section that I would consider radical. 
Um, I would consider it something that only aliens and strangers could understand. And it's in Matthew 5.38. Last week, we talked about this concept of, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we went through the lex talionis, the Latin for the law of retaliation, uh, or the law of retribution, uh, the law of tit for tat. And now three times in the, the Old Testament, it talks about uh, if, if, if someone takes your eye, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, bone for bone, and there's three times in the Old Testament it talks about that, and it's always an equal, uh, an equal, um, you're my, my language people, an equal retribution. Uh, but not always, if you're a slave, then it's not. And so as we went through it, and I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking about you know, the remaining of the passages, I kind of came to this conclusion that Jesus says, you know, you have heard that it was said this, or you were told it was this. However, I say to you these following things. And when you read the following things, every time Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and then he follows up with something, I think it's important to recognize we've got to think about what he's getting to, and it's he's getting to our hearts. And that his goal for us is for each one of us to have kingdom eyes and each one of us to have a kingdom heart. That's God's goal. That's Jesus' goal is for us to think and to act and to look and to speak with the kingdom in mind at the forefront of our lives. That's what God is, is, is asking of us. That's what God is requiring of us. And when, when you look at that requirement and you look at that um, the desire for God in our lives, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, and at one point, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, he's talking about lawsuits, um, and he's saying, hey, you, you know, you guys are going against each other in lawsuits, and, and you're going against unbelievers, and he's, he's giving them some, some instruction, he's giving, uh, Paul's giving the church at Corinth some instruction on this. And, and towards the end of chapter 6, before he gets into the, the, uh, the next passage of Scripture, the next subject, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20, actually, he, then he goes into sexual immorality, which is where this is found. And at the end, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, verse 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the context is the immorality that was going on in the church of Corinth. But the statement where he says, uh, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, it, it, it applies across the board of what we do in our lives and why we do what we do in our lives as Christians. As people say, yeah, I follow God, I love Jesus, I want to be a follower of His. But we've got to understand that you are not your own. Somebody purchased you. Jesus purchased you with his blood. And so when we look at these applications or when we look at these teachings and then we do our best to apply it to our lives, I don't see this as something God's saying, hey, if you feel like doing this, it's a good idea. If you feel like doing this, uh, it's going to benefit you. 
I think what Jesus is saying, if you look at the whole of Scripture, he's saying, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You were purchased. You were bought. You are not yours. And so when we go through this Matthew 5 passage about retaliation, which is the, the, uh, the next section that we're in, in, in verse 38 it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, radical aliens and strangers. Some of the teaching in this section here seems radical to me. If somebody slaps me, just let him slap the other side as well. That doesn't make sense to me. Is this a physical, uh, is this something physical that God is saying if it happened physically or is he talking metaphorically? Is he talking about insult and injury? Is he talking about um, insult? Uh, not physical assault, but insult? Barclay says, suppose a right-handed man is standing in front of another man. This is, the, this is the belief of many people when it comes to this passage, looking at the time and the place. Suppose a right-handed man is standing in front of another man, and suppose he wants to slap the other man on the right cheek, how must he do it? Unless he goes through the most complicated contortions, and unless he empties the blow of all force, he can hit the other man's cheek only in one way, with the back of his hand. Now, according to Jewish rabbinic law, to hit a man with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as to hit him with the um, front of the hand, the palm of the hand. So then, what Jesus is saying is this, even if a man should direct at you the most deadly and calculated insult, you must on no account retaliate, and you must on no account resent it. Radical. It will not happen very often, if at all, that anyone will slap us on the face. But time and time again, life brings to us insults, either great or small, and Jesus is here saying that the true Christian has learned to resent no insult and to seek retaliation for no slight. Jesus himself was called a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. He was called the friend of tax-gatherers and harlots, with the implication that he was like the company he kept. The true Christian has forgotten what it is to be insulted. He has learned from his master to accept any insult and never to resent it, and never to seek to retaliate. So anytime I read a, a passage of Scripture and I read a commentary and I start thinking about practical application, and because my life has been, for the last three and a half months, completely just surrounded by baseball, baseball stories start coming to mind. And so when he says, when somebody insults you, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Well, I, I think in, our, in high school sports and college sports now, and I have some theories about where it originated, but in high school sports, the level of trash talking and chatter has, has risen to a place that I never thought was possible. Yesterday I watched a game where the kid on the other team was using some of the most foul language very loudly, and the umpires did nothing about it. The coaches did nothing about it. There's, there's 150 people in the stands Parents and grandmothers and children and words are just coming out of this kid's mouth and it's as loud as could be and nothing happens. And it got me thinking about the art of psychological warfare in sports has diminished so much over the last 
couple of decades. And I remember when I was younger that when a, when a team would start chirping a lot, the good old-fashioned retaliation of the high fastball up and in to kind of knock the batter down was accepted, and it was part of the game. And it kind of subsided all of the trash talk that would happen in sports. And so I'm at this game uh, a couple of days ago, and there's a kid from Castleview High School. I know his name. I know his number. Now I know his stats because I looked him up. He was from Castleview High School over in Denver, and they were playing against Fruta. And this kid, who, who here has been to Louisiana? Raise your hand if you've been to Louisiana. Who here has been to Bayou, Louisiana? Right? So in baseball, there's a term. If a pitcher throws a fastball by a hitter, and the hitter swings, and he misses, they say, Louisiana, Bayou, like the ball is Bayou. And I'm sitting in the stands, and I heard this kid say it about 15 times over the course of three innings. I'm like, who is this kid? The other team in the next game comes up in the stands, and they're saying, man, that kid's chirpy. He's mouthy. He kept screaming Bayou. He kept scre screaming Louisiana. He kept saying, go back to your dugout. This kid, he's not even on the field. He's in the, he's in the dugout, and he's yelling at these other kids. Well, it turns out, I look at his number, and he's the designated hitter for the, that team. I just didn't notice in the first couple of innings that he hit. So I, I go, this kid's hitting. So he comes up to bat, and what happens? <laughs> Bayou. I'm in the top stands, and I, had this, I, I did everything I could from yelling, Bayou! I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. He comes up three innings later. Fastball, strike three. Louisiana! <laughs> Man, I was so close to doing it, and I thought, oh, I can't. Paul Kane, the athletic director, is going to be here. One of the other coaches, the parents, are like, yeah, Coach Porter from Palisades running his mouth. So I just kind of bit my lip, and I went down. And I started thinking about this passage again. I turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate insult. Like, what... How can I implement the stuff that I believe and I teach into my day-to-day -day life? And that's one of the, the ways to do that, is to not get worked up. And I could tell you story after story in sports. One of the kids from Fruta a week and a half ago in our JV tournament gets on first base, and he leads off, and he's looking at our left-handed pitcher, because the left-handed pitcher is facing the first, base, uh, first baseman and the runner, and the kid's taking off, and he's doing this, like that. And I'm yelling at the kid, knock that off, you know, and I'm yelling at the umpire, you can't do that. Uh, that's trash. And my dad's yelling at the umpire, too, about doing something about it. But that's the culture that we're in today. That's not the culture at Palisade, but that's the culture of our high school sports today. And our youth sports is travel ball all the way up. And if I'm going to be the salt and I'm going to be the light, which I claim to be, I have to adhere to what this says and not get retribution and turn the other cheek. And it's difficult because we get emotion and we get frustrated and we get fired up in a lot of different ways. Someone cuts you off. Somebody's rudy at the store. Somebody's rudy on the phone. I mean, all those things happen in our lives and they insult you. Somebody says something about your business model, they say something about how you talk or whatever it is, and you naturally want to just 
fire back and get your pound of flesh. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Don't, don't retaliate. That's what I, I'm seeing in Scripture here. And it's, it's, again, it's kingdom eyes, kingdom heart. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. The next thing that Jesus says in Matthew 540, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now back in the book of Exodus chapter 22, uh, right after the, the big Ten Commandments, a couple chapters later, in Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In old times, in Israel, it was law that you could not take somebody's cloak as down payment or as collateral. You had to give it back to them that evening before the sun set, because that was their blanket. That's what they slept in. And the tunic, of course, is like a loose garment that was, that, that was sleeveless and it reached the wearer's knees and, and, and most Jews, if not all Jews, would have several tunics, but most had one cloak. And it was this outer garment blanket type that they wore in the day uh, as a robe and then as a blanket by night and you couldn't take that as collateral. And so Jesus is saying, if somebody wants your cloak, give it to them. They want your tunic, give it to them. They want your cloak, give it to them. And I thought, this is kind of where I struggle. In verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, where I'm struggling is, is Jesus implying that if an evil person, because back up here in evil, and, and, and I, I don't think I... Yeah, uh, this word resist means to stand against or to oppose. Back in this other verse here, back earlier, it says, if an evil person, uh, do not resist the one who is evil. That word resist uh, means, to, um, means to stand against or to oppose. So if an evil person comes to you and wants to sue you, is Jesus saying, just give it to him? Just say, fine, you can have it, no big deal? That doesn't make sense to me. Because the possessions that each one of us have, the money that we have, the cars, the houses, the clothing, whatever it, that, you, that you own is actually not yours, it's God's, and we're just the steward of it. We're, we're, just, we're just managing it for him. So I, I, I have a hard time with this idea, if we take this literally, that if somebody comes to you and lays claim to your resources, you just say, here you go. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not one of those things that I can just go, yeah, this is what it means. I have, I have some ideas that I'll share with you. Um, I think what God is telling us here is that he wants us to be concerned about where our treasure is. He wants us to be concerned about where our heart is. He wants us to be concerned about where our eyes are. He wants us to have kingdom heart. And that nothing that we own belongs to us. Nothing. I don't, I don't believe that he's... 
I don't believe he's saying, if I get a phone call from an attorney that says, hey, this guy's suing you for a million dollars, I don't have a million dollars, but if I did, I just go, oh, well, here, take it. I, I just can't, am I wrong in thinking that, Peg? I wish Steve were here. <laughs> because I think he's, I know he's studied this out quite a bit, being in business, but I've just, I just, it doesn't make sense to me. When I flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and there's this passage again that, where it says that uh, they were bought at a price, or we were bought at a price, and that we are not our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it deals with lawsuits among believers. It deals with two Christians going against each other in the court of law. And it says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, trial, to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's saying to the believers, two believers going to court together, why would you go before unbelievers to determine the matter? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between your brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I might table that one a little bit because I think that passage is, is the Matthew Five passage is a pretty difficult passage to understand when it comes to what Jesus is saying here. I very much understand the insult, and um, I get that. I think it's our God-given right to protect ourselves and our family, but I, I also believe it is our God-given duty to take insult and uh, like water off a duck's back and not retaliate. As far as the lawsuit goes, I think Jesus might be telling us here that... Um, If our heart is not 100% on him and it's on our possessions, we've got a problem. If we're putting anything in front of God financially, we've got a problem. The next passage he says in verse 41, Matthew 5:41, and if anyone forces you to go 1 mile, go with him 2 miles. The word forces here means to be a courier, to press into public service or to compel. This word started in, uh, this word throughout history started in Persia and it came to signify any kind of forced impressment in, into the service of occupying power. Now at the time, the Israelites were in Palestine and they were under the Roman rule and it was common that at any moment when you're traveling that a Roman soldier would impose upon you the job at hand, which could be menial tasks or carrying baggage for them. I believe Jesus is saying that we have to give up the right to our personal, personal liberty to do as we like. Be always thinking of your duty and your privilege to be of service to others when a task is laid upon you, even if the task is unreasonable and hateful. Do not do it as grim duty to be resented. Do it as service to be gladly rendered. Go to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, 
verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How many of us grumble when we're asked to do something? Honey, help clean the kitchen, make me some coffee, kids take out the trash, clean your room, go mow the yard. Hey, can you help me move this box here? Can you help me move? Can you help uh, clean the house? Whatever it is. How many of us grumble? You're all a bunch of sinners. Jesus here is saying, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Do it with joy. And he says, we're here to serve, right? And I get just as guilty as anybody else going, I have to do this. I have to, sometimes I have to prepare a sermon. I've got to go to practice. I've got to go to work. I've got to help this person do that. They've asked me again to help them. And I grumble about it inside. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have a kingdom heart. I want you to want to serve people. Now that's, for me, probably just as difficult as not getting my pound of flesh in retaliation for insult. But that's what God is calling us to. Matthew chapter 5. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Does that make any sense? About our, it's, it's kind of about our attitude. It's not necessarily, I mean, we don't, we don't live in a, in a society now where a lawman can come up to us and say, hey, I want you to take this mail to the next town. I want you to give fodder for my horse. I want you to carry this cross for me, Simon. I want you to take this. We don't live in that sort of culture now. But this is just as applicable to us with the attitude in which we do the things we're asked to do. Because again, you are not your own. You were purchased. You were bought at a price. And that's the attitude in which Jesus is telling his disciples, and that's the attitude in which he's telling us when we're called to do something, when we're asked to do something, do it with joy. Do it with grateful that we, can, that we have the ability to walk and, and carry things and see and hear. Do it with an attitude that would be pleasing to God and do it as you were working for God rather than the man or the woman that asked you to do something. These are all radical teachings because we live in a very selfish world. And I think that's just part of the fallen nature. But this is the stuff that God is, is wanting from us. And finally, we have this uh, Matthew 5.42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I have struggled with this concept about giving to the one that begs. Never the borrow. I've never struggled with the borrow. You want to borrow my truck? Borrow my truck. You want to borrow the girl? Borrow. I don't care. You can borrow whatever I own. Okay, whatever I'm a, a steward over, you can borrow. But the begging, is all, I've always struggled with that. Have you, there's a movie, I'm not going to name the name of it, because Brenda said I've got to stop recommending movies that you shouldn't watch. There's a movie where this guy goes to this conference, and he learns to say yes to everything he's asked. Okay? He's always been no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden, he goes to this thing, and he says yes. So this... This homeless guy comes up to him outside of this conference, and he goes, hey, man, can I, uh, can I have a ride? Yes. So he gives the guy a ride. Where are you? Where do you go? Well, it's about 
way out in the woods there. So he takes him out there. Hey, man, can I borrow your phone? Yes. So he lets him use his phone. Hey, man, can I have a few bucks? Yes. So he gives him a few bucks. Well, you got a lot of money there. Can I have it all? He said, yes. So he gives him all the money. He goes, man, every time I go outside of one of these conferences, I score. You guys are the nicest people around there. Because this motivational speaker is telling him to say yes to everything. He's a banker, and he gives yes to every small loan that comes across his desk. So this idea is that we're just, we're, we're just to just give in some people's mind. And the question that I was, I, I say that about that movie because it was kind of comical. The guy you know, looked like a little bit rough on, a, on the eyes. But the question I had to myself, are we going to give to the one who will use the money for, say, drugs and alcohol? Um, does that mean we give to the capable lazy man? Do we give to the homeless person that's smoking cigarettes on the iPhone when they come up and ask us for $5? Those are all legitimate questions. And in my mind, when I'm reading this, when Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I will recommend this movie called Cinderella Man. And this is a movie, I like to watch movies and it stops my mind from thinking, it gives me stories once in a while, but this movie Cinderella Man, it's a boxing movie, and he's, I don't want to ruin it if you haven't seen it, but it's a, I think it's a wonderful movie. It's based on a true story, and he uh, goes from fame uh, down to being poor during the Great Depression, and he's about to lose his family because they shut off the gas. He doesn't have money for milk and food, and so the kids are going to get shipped off to his, his, uh, his sister-in-law's house, and so he goes to these wealthy um, He's trying to work at the boat docks. It's a, you've probably seen it, true story. He tries to work at the boat docks, and he's, every now and again he gets a job, but it's also pretty competitive because everybody's looking for work. So he doesn't have the money. His gas getting shut off, shut off. He goes to the, the boxing promoter place where everybody hangs out and all the wealthy that have still made it or still making it. They're not in the poorhouse. And he asks them for money. He says, you guys know I'm not like this, but I need, I need money. He's not spending it on things that are destructive. He's trying to keep his family together. And for some reason, I, I believe this teaching here is that we're, we're to recognize that, that what we have um, doesn't belong to us. But we are stewards of what God has given us. Okay? So those that would say that if anybody asks, we should just give. I would say, what if somebody's running a sex trafficking ring and they need money to pay for the driver. Should we give money to that? No, absolutely not. And so when we look at these passages and it says, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you, give to the one who begs from you, I go automatically to the, the, the book of Acts where we actually see financial discussions. And in Acts chapter 2, there was this unity within the church body, and it says in, in Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The giving that was done within the church was done for people that were within the church. They were in need.
But there was some qualifications. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, and some people are red-letter-only Christians or believers, and I go, no, there's things in Scripture that are very clear that are requirements of those that are within the church body. And one that I've used in conversation with people as second Thessalonians, when it comes to this, when somebody wants it, just give it to them and let them borrow and give them money. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is a pretty intense passage, and it's a warning to the church at Thessalonica against people that were being lazy. And he says, now we command you, brothers, this is a command here from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, uh, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know, that's not really talked about in churches a whole lot. This, this command for believers, that they are to, if they are physically capable and mentally capable of working and providing for themselves, this is a command that was given. It says, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him eat, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, this is where I feel it comes to the conclusion of what Jesus says. If somebody wants to borrow, loan it to them. If they beg, give it to them. As for you, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We've kind of gotten to where, when we're talking about radical teaching, that's a little bit radical teaching within Christianity. People would say, well, that's, that's kind of wrong that you would say that, that you're going to require people to, to work. You're going to require people to earn their keep. You're going to require that they do things, but that's biblical. That's what it says in First Thess- or Second Thessalonians here. And, and so when, when I look at the scripture of Jesus saying, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who borrow from you, there has been plenty of times within the church body when we've seen a need as a church body and you fill the need as a church body. But you don't, I don't believe, I don't feel comfortable handing God's resources that he's made us a steward over to someone that is just going to throw it in the trash, that's just going to burn it. Is that too harsh? Maybe it is. Maybe you don't agree, and that's okay. That's just how I, that's how I see Scripture here. Um, I do know there are people that, that believe that, um, I have friends that believe you just, you just give anytime somebody asks. Anytime, doesn't matter who it is. Hey, man, you got a couple bucks? Sure, here you go. God bless you. And I, that, that's a matter of faith. I think. Um, but all this, when I see the, the Matthew 5 passage and the Sermon on the Mount, every single teaching in this scripture comes down to kingdom eyes and kingdom heart. That you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You don't get to say, I don't want to do this. 
And maybe Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, I don't think so, but maybe he is saying, Nate, if somebody's going to sue you, just give them everything. If, some, if someone wants to come to you and say, hey, uh, uh, you know, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, well, I'm begging from you. Give me $5,000 cash right now. Oh, okay, I got to go find it somewhere. I, I don't think in the context of all of Scripture, that's what Jesus is saying. And I'm very open to other understandings of that. Very open to it. Because there's part of me that just goes, maybe we're supposed to be that radical. I don't think that's the level of radical that Jesus is talking about. But I'm open to talking about it. Um, Next week, there's this belief of Jesus that we're supposed to um, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A radical teaching. That we're we're supposed to pray for those who persecute you. And I'm going off memory here, but I've done a study on that word persecution. And that word implies an aggressive pursuit of someone. If I'm going to persecute you, I'm going to aggressively pursue harming you. And Jesus says, pray for them and love them. Another bit of radical teaching that is so counterintuitive in our brains and our minds. Almost as much as don't get your pound of flesh when somebody insults you. Don't retaliate. Even though it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, bone for bone, don't retaliate. As much as it says that if somebody wants your cloak, give them your, your tunic, give them your cloak as well. I still don't get the suing thing. I, I just... I. I wish I was a better preacher that I could tell you this is exactly what Jesus meant, but there's just too much in there for me to wrap my mind around today. Um, they go in two miles and go, uh, or go one mile, two miles, that's easy. I think that's easy. If someone is asking for help and they, want, they need your help and it's even going to inconvenience you, do it with joy. Do it as we're working for God, not for man. And the camp I sit, out, sit in with my wife on the giving is, uh, I've never said no to a member of the church. Ever. That's not an invitation to come. But Brenda and I have never, ever said no. I've been burned, but I've still never said no. We have still never said no. Because, and I could, I I have no doubt that's the heart of this church body. I have no doubt in my mind that's where this church body's at. Because Jesus says, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Kingdom heart and kingdom eyes, that's what he's after. Because we are not our own, we were purchased. Uh, next week we'll talk about our enemies and how we're going to learn how to pray for them. We have a communion.
Meditation. All right.